This week on Myths and Legends, we're finishing up the story of the Golem of Prague, and you'll see the very first text message from God, as well as how to avoid going up against a terrifying golem. Just don't be a horrible person. That one's actually pretty easy. The creature this week is the Funeral Mountain Terror Shot. Turtle casket dogs who just want to spend a weekend in Las Vegas. This is Myths and Legends, episode 107b. To dust you shall return. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, we met a rabbi by the name of Judah Lowe, also known as the Maharel, who lived in 16th century Prague. His life was plagued by the threat of a blood libel, rising from the anti-Semitic myth that Jews baked the blood of Christians into their matzahs at Passover. In response to the increased danger led by a priest named Thaddeus, the Maharel was given a command by God to create a golem, a mindless clay man, and a super strong defender of the Jewish population of Prague. It was just before Passover, and the Maharela gathered everyone together. It had been a difficult few years, but there hadn't been a blood libel in nearly a decade. They were in the synagogue, and the Maharela was reading from the Siddur. He knew it by heart, of course, he still liked to read it. He asked someone to light a candle so he could see the words, and the wick took the flame and then sputtered out. All the people assembled there thought it strange, and so he tried again, and again, the wick lit briefly, then went out. The Maharal grew pale and asked everyone to follow him into the hallway, where there were plenty of burning candles. As he stood before the candles, he resumed his reading, saying, all the leaven in my possession, and then he paused, there were words in there, new words. In the dim light of the candle, he thought he saw in the five. And so he read it aloud and instantly the candles went out. He shuffled down to another candle and recited the same sentence once more. Again, the candles went out. Now the Maharal was becoming very serious. He looked at all the faces gathered together. The service was over. They should all return to their homes immediately. It had been a dream the other night, a dream he would have forgotten, if not for the candles just now. He had a dream that the five-sided palace, an old, dilapidated, partially condemned palace in the Jewish quarter, right next to the synagogue, was on fire. The fire raged while all the Jews were inside the synagogue praying, and the fires broke through the window, almost as if they meant to, and consumed the synagogue. That's why, in the five, had been temporarily added to the words that evening. According to the Torah, Jewish people aren't supposed to have any leaven in their possession during Passover. The Maharal read the addition of in the five to mean that they were to ensure that the leaven, the trap, the evil that was meant for them, was taken out of the five-sided palace as well. The Maharal consulted those closest with him while the golem rested at the far end of the room. They knew everyone in the five-sided palace. Seeing as this was an ancient, dilapidated palace, the only people who lived there now were those who couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Some were poor Jewish people, but most inhabitants were Gentile artists, who were all on good terms with the Maharal. The Maharal knew who was behind all this, too. Thaddeus. 
that angry, deeply anti-Semitic priest who had been trying to destroy him for decades. When the Maharel's son-in-law spoke up, his fears were confirmed. There was a legend of the Mag King, one who once ruled the city from the five-sided palace, a man who didn't want to show his face. Since it was the Middle Ages and even Mag Kings needed to go to church, the priests indulged him and built a secret passageway to the green cloister so he could say his prayers and return without having to see anyone. Of course, time overtook the king and the five-sided palace, but the church continued to maintain the green cloister. And it had been given to Thaddeus, who had discovered the passageway three months prior. A week ago, Thaddeus watched his servant cleaning the garden next to the burned-out cell. The man, it seemed, was smarter and stronger than he let on. He stuck to his story that a stranger had been burned to death, and Thaddeus, not really having any evidence to the contrary, and also under intense scrutiny from both the church and the government for having a stranger burned to death in his house, he wasn't in any position to press the issue, because the servant knew that the person wasn't some passing vagrant, but a girl that Thaddeus had pretty much kidnapped. The servant and his wife were working in the priest's courtyard, with a thick iron gate thrown open so they could toss refuse into a pile outside. It was a cool, sunny morning, and the servant had brought his two sons to work so they could play in the warm spring air. The day wore on, and the servant and his wife began to grow weary. Come nightfall, the servant yelled for his boys, who had gone out the iron gate to play in the field. He waited, and waited. His steps were heavy, and his feet dragged as he peeked his head out of the iron gate, to bark that it was time to go, come on. One head popped out of the fields, barely awake. The servant told him to get his brother and come on. It was only a few minutes later that the boy came running inside. He hadn't seen his brother all afternoon. The family searched the field as the sun set, until they lost the light. The servant ran to the priest and begged his employer for a torch. His son was missing. The priest gasped and provided not just the light, but an extra set of eyes. It was while they were searching that the priest said he knew it wasn't this. Prayed it wasn't this. But it was nearly Passover season, and they knew what that meant. Of course, the priest knew exactly where the boy was. Late that afternoon, the boy had come to his door for a cup of water. The priest looked at the abandoned courtyard. The boy's parents were getting rid of a pile of weeds, and his brother was asleep in the sun. Thaddeus smiled and invited the boy into his house. It was in the cool of the cellar that the boy felt the priest's fingers wrap around his neck. When it was done, Thaddeus walked the corpse across the path to the five-sided castle himself. He already had the flasks ready, complete with the names of all the prominent rabbis in Prague. All it would take was a well-placed anonymous tip to get the police to search the abandoned room next to the synagogue, and that will be it. The father knew how tricky the priest was, and knew not to listen to his employer. The mother, however, did not. She listened to the suggestion that perhaps she might mention that she had looked out across the field just before nightfall, and had seen a Jewish man carrying a sack. If that was the reason her son was gone, then she might be saving his life. If not, the priest said it was just a little white lie, and wouldn't hurt anyone beyond accusing an entire community of a vicious falsehood. Thaddeus had coached her to weep and fall on her knees before the police. But she didn't even need the coaching. The thought of her son being murdered was enough. It was only King Rudolf's edict from years ago that saved the Maharel and others. 
Given that it was an incredibly damaging accusation that had been proven false 100% of the time anyone had bothered to investigate it, there was a weeks-long procedure that the police had to go through in order to even bring someone to court for the allegation. But it didn't take weeks, because it was that night that the Maharal's candles had refused to light. It was 10 a.m. the next morning, the day before Passover, when the search began. Doors that weren't answered were quickly kicked in. The life of a whole community was upturned as the priest walked through the streets with the chief of police. It was as they passed the five-sided palace that the priest planted the idea that if he was going to kill a child and drain their blood, he would do it in long-abandoned ruins where no one would look. He tried to contain his joy as the police entered and tried to mask his confusion when they came out after the search, having found nothing. By mid-afternoon, they could see that the search was fruitless. After the police had left, the Maharal announced that they had been delivered. The trap had been removed, and they could celebrate the Passover in peace. Days later, the priest was preparing for Easter when he called the servant to him, demanding that the man go down into the cellar and take inventory of the wine for the upcoming services. Thaddeus was writing while the servant and his dog were down in the cellar. It was annoying, but the dog wouldn't stop barking. And then he did stop barking. The priest was so engrossed in his work that he didn't hear the servant's hurried steps up the cellar staircase and the door to his house close. Minutes later, the police stormed the priest's house. They kept him back and went straight for the cellar where they found the exsanguinated corpse of the young boy. Thaddeus was under arrest. Just the night before, the Maharal, his son-in-law, and the golem had crept across the street to the five-sided palace. When they opened the door, the dogs of one of the tenants went crazy, barking and threatening to wake the entire palace. The men prayed, and the dogs became quiet. Opening the hatch to the cellar, the boy was almost immediately visible. Thaddeus had wanted him to be easy to find for the authorities when they inevitably searched the palace. The Maharal and his son could barely look on the boy, but quickly noticed that, Next to him sat dozens of flasks filled with blood. Suddenly, they realized that here, now, in the same room as the boy, they were the most vulnerable. In a low whisper, the Maharal commanded the golem to take the boy across the long subterranean path back to the priest's cellar and hide the body among the bottles as quickly and as quietly as possible. While the golem was doing that, the other men dug a shallow hole and upturned the basket, quietly crushing the bottles. They were nearly finished when the golem returned, and it was just 12.30 when the trio arrived back at the synagogue. Thaddeus' eyes grew wide in disbelief, and he actually remarked honestly that he had no idea how the boy's body had appeared in his own basement. The magistrate, of course, wasn't buying any of it. The priest was a well-known anti-Semite, and it was obvious what he was gonna do with the body. They had executed people for less, realizing that no one was believing his, I don't know how that dead kid got my basement, even though that's the exact sort of thing I would do, defense. Thaddeus flew into a rage, shouting that they deserved it. The servant and the Maharel, they had stolen a beautiful young potential convert from him and shamed him countless times. He only wanted to see them killed or driven from their homes forever based on a lie. Was that so wrong? The magistrate and the priest's own cardinal said, Yes, yes it was, it was absolutely wrong. 
So, it was in 1583 that Thaddeus was convicted of the very crime he had accused the Jewish community of committing for years. The Maharal, now in his mid-60s, would still live another 30 years as a pillar of his community, while Thaddeus died less than a decade later, in exile on an uninhabited island. Over the next handful of years, the golem remained active through several hijinks and subplots. He stopped a brother and sister from marrying each other by speaking to the spirit of the midwife that switched the girl's brother with the brother of another family at birth. Another time, a man who was given the honor of holding up the Torah on Yom Kippur let it fall to the ground, and no one could figure out why. Then, in a dream during a fast, the Maharal was given a heap of unintelligible letters from God. The Maharal wrote the letters down, cut them up, and sprinkled them on a table in front of the golem, who looked on them and arranged them at once. Apparently, the golem was not only an indestructible guardian of the Jewish community, but also pretty good at the Sunday jumble, because it came out reading, do not lie, and then the letters M-Y-N-W-Y-K-M-T-R. The Maharal looked at it and somehow instantly discerned the meaning. Do not lie with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Yom Kippur mentioned Torah reading. Yeah, apparently God spoke in AIM abbreviations before that was even a thing. As it turned out, the man who dropped the Torah was cheating on his wife with his neighbor. Both confessed in the end, and everyone was put right before the law. Later, there was an incident where some of the Jews in Prague began to use a slur against other Jews. Sternly, the Maharal decreed that, Seriously, guys, we have enough problems. Well, one man brazenly defied the order to not use the slur. And so the Maharal's enforcer stopped by and carried the man like a sheep through the city to the Maharal. Sufficiently put in his place, the man sulked back home and didn't use the slur again. However, he did harbor a deep hatred toward Yusuf the Golem after that. So deep was his hatred that he and his friends followed the golem to a well in the wintertime and pushed the protector in, dropping heavy rocks on him and hoping to drown him. They had almost succeeded when another group of people came looking for the golem and rescued him before he came apart in the water. He had to rest for three entire days, but eventually he was able to walk with a cane. Unable to speak, Yosef wrote that the porter was the one to blame and he would really like to kill that guy. May he kill that guy? The Maharal shook his head retribution came from heaven. Well, it turned out that he was right. Days later, news reached him that the porter, the man who initially said the slur, came down with a mange called the black scurf. And, to keep the infection from spreading, the doctors had to cut pieces of the man's flesh away daily, without anesthesia, in the late 1500s. In the end, he died a slow, excruciating death. The list of stories about the golem go on and on. On one occasion, he rid the town of a spectral black dog hanging out in the ruins outside of Prague by burning down said ruins. There were a lot of things that happened, though none were quite as noteworthy or as dangerous as the final blood libel that took place during the Maharal's lifetime. It had been three years since Thaddeus was sent away, and things had grown quiet. Everyone was heartened by the newfound peace. The Maharal figured that his life's purpose had been fulfilled and breathed a sigh of relief. That was until the accusation came down against his friend, a man by the name of Ginz. And it was airtight. We'll learn all about that and see the demise of the golem. But that will be right after this.
two men had been seen outside Prague speaking Yiddish and hastily burying a body in neither a Christian nor a Jewish cemetery. When an 18-year-old Christian man disappeared the following day, travelers remembered the incident and the body was exhumed. It turned out to be the missing boy and his throat had been cut and his blood drained. The man's brother said that he had fallen ill and the last time anyone had seen him, he was entering the house of his Jewish employer, Gins. They suspected that Gins had taken their brother down into the basement and slaughtered him. Gins was a tanner, meaning he prepared animal skins for clothes. And when his house and factory were searched, the bloody clothes of the missing boy were found. Gins was arrested, King Rudolph was written, and for the first time in decades, a blood libel case went to trial in Prague. Okay, so he didn't do it, by the way. The Maharal knew this, we know it. But it was an elaborate libel. This is like Ocean's Eleven level racism. Immediately, things took a bad turn for the Jewish community in Prague. The delicate peace and understanding between the Maharal and the government wavered on the edge of a knife. And while no violence broke out against the Jews, it was an environment that Thaddeus would have been proud of had he been around to see it. The priests turned on the Maharal, declaring that any Christian who entered a Jewish-owned business would not only be fearing for their life, but sinning as well. The Maharal lost all credibility with the governing officials, and even King Rudolf suspected Gins. Gins went to trial, and he was convicted. Aharon Gins and his three sons were sentenced to 15 years of hard labor, while the four men's wives were sentenced to six years in prison. The Maharal knew that it was, well, libel. It was not true. They didn't do it. But this conviction had so easily destroyed all the bridges he had built between Jews and Christians throughout his lifetime, so he had nothing left but to take his friend's case. He learned everything he could about the three brothers, and he didn't need to go that far. He just had to talk to the workers in the tannery because the two surviving brothers had all been employees of Gins. The youngest brother, the one who died, was named Kozlek, and he had come to work in the factory last. The older two brothers were good workers, but the third was just the worst. Having fun at work is one thing, but throwing dead animal carcasses and splashing your coworkers with dangerous chemicals was altogether different. Gins, as it turned out, liked the older two brothers so much that he was reluctant to fire the youngest. One day, that personnel problem took care of itself, as Kozilek started another round of his game called jumping over the vats of dangerous chemicals and fell into the vat of dangerous chemicals. Quickly, they fished him out, but instead of superpowers, Kozilek came down with a vicious upper respiratory infection. He became so sick that he couldn't do his previous job, so Gins assigned him a new one, sweeping the floors and cleaning up the shop. It was charity more than anything, but the brothers were incensed that the demotion affected Kozilek's paycheck. Soon, however, it didn't matter. After a dinner at Ginza's house, the youngest brother had disappeared. The Maharal heard rumors that the man had gone home to die with his family, but, of course, the evidence said otherwise. Then, while visiting Ginz before the man was set to leave for the work camp, the Maharal learned two things that broke the case wide open. Number one, Ginz had been robbed the night of the dinner, and he was certain that the brothers had done it. And two, the brothers spoke Yiddish. They had learned it over the years of working in the factory. Suddenly, the two supposedly Jewish men who had originally buried Kozilek outside of town were less of a mystery to the Maharal. Kozilek had succumbed to his illness, and the brothers had cut his throat, and obviously buried him, where people would see, while speaking to each other in Yiddish. They used their access to their employer 
to hide Kozilek's bloody clothes in his basement. The Maharel knew it all, knew the truth. Now, he just needed to prove it. Luckily, he had something Sherlock Holmes never did, an invincible clay servant who could talk to the dead. The brothers were good, but they weren't that good. They had connections in the city, and, whether by cash or kindness, the Maharel learned where the men were from. Four kilometers outside of the city, it was a different political climate, and the priest there was happy to talk to an esteemed rabbi from the city, and his very quiet friend. The priest said he knew of a man by the name of Kozilek. He had buried him quietly last month. The brothers were poor, so he was surprised that, to pay for the burial plot, they had produced a silver watch, a silver watch that matched the one Ginz had reported stolen. Venturing further, the Maharal asked to see where the young man was buried. The golem confirmed that he couldn't see the spirit of Kozilek in the grave. I mean, of course he couldn't. So the Maharal cashed in the last chip he had with the Prague police and got the few that would still listen to him to come to the village just outside the city. They took the priest's statement, confiscated the stolen property, exhumed the empty casket, and went to talk to Kozilek's mother. The mother, it seemed, was no snitch. Despite the evidence against her, she maintained that Kozlak had disappeared in Prague. It only took, no joke, the Prague policeman backhanding the elderly woman twice in the face for her to crack and spill the details about her sons. She said that she had buried Kozlak and helped her sons fence the stolen goods. The police raided the shop in town and found all of Ginz's jewelry. Officials sent word to Prague to raid the home of the brothers, and the pair, returning to see their door kicked in by police, promptly skipped town. They were never seen in Prague again. Mere hours before Ginz and his sons were set to leave for the work camps, police notified them of the news. The women were also freed from prison. A carriage arrived for the Maharel, sent by the king himself, and, less than a week later, the old rabbi knelt on the ground before the king, beseeching the ruler to end the blood libel once and for all in Prague. It had been a blight on the community forever, and it had never once been proven true. The king himself stooped down, and helped the elderly Maharel off the floor, motioning to a seat next to his throne. King Rudolf and the Maharel spoke for nearly an hour and a half. In word of the new official edict, completely banning the blood libel from the king's realm forever, beat the Maharel's return to Prague. Prohibition against the blood libel now codified into law, the Maharel came home. There, sitting in his home, was the golem. He sighed. When he had created the man all those years ago, he never dreamed that he would actually see the end of the blood libel. Now, the time had come. It was over. It was finally over. He woke the golem gently and told the bean that he wasn't going to sleep in his room that night but in the attic of the synagogue. That evening, the golem arrived in the attic of the synagogue and found the three men who had created him already there. It was a happy day, and it was a sad day. It was a happy day because their danger had ended. A sad day because the golem, though mindless, had been a constant presence in their lives for years. He was like a big clay security blanket. Still, he would obey any command that was given to him. And though he was innocent, they knew that people were not. Their task complete, they now had to destroy him, 
lest he fall into the wrong hands. They told the golem to lay down, and he obeyed. The Maharal was the first to start his walk. It was counterclockwise, and he hesitated a bit before taking that last step. He gave the golem, Yosef, a look of thanks before completing his circuit. The being gasped and became still. The student stepped forward. When he had completed his circuit, the golem's hair and nails fell away, turning to dust just before they hit the ground. The being once again glowed red. Finally, it was the son-in-law's turn to walk. As he completed his seventh circuit, what was once the golem cooled. It was now little more than damp clay and loam, still with the handprints of the men who had created him on the riverbank years earlier. The Maharal found that the attic contained prayer shawls, no longer fit for ritual use. So the trio grabbed a couple and wrapped the body of the golem, hiding him under damaged holy books in the corner of the large attic. The men descended the stairs, and the next day, a rumor was heard among the Jewish population of Prague. The golem had become angry and violent, and he had run away in the night. The Maharal fed the rumors, and the people adjusted to life without Yosef the golem. Another completely unrelated decree came from the Maharal, the leader of the synagogue. He had been up in the attic recently, and no one was to go up there under any circumstances. It was littered with old books and dry prayer shawls, and since the only light source in the 1500s was flame, it presented an enormous fire hazard. They hadn't survived the dangers of the blood libel to have their synagogue carelessly burned down. And so, as people who had personally seen the mysterious clay man began to die, others began to question the possibility that such a being could have ever existed, and Yosef the Golem passed into legend. They do say, however, that the man-shaped clay still slumbers in the attic of the synagogue of Prague, ready for a time when he'll be needed once again. Like I said last week, this all comes from Rabbi Yudel Rosenberg's story of the golem. Earlier versions present the golem as a servant of the Maharel, and they almost always end badly, either with the golem taking things too literally and hurting people, getting angry, or working on the Sabbath. Rosenberg wasn't the first one to associate the golem with the Maharel, but as far as I can tell, he was the first to make it a protector and guardian of the Jewish people. And since he himself had cast it as a manuscript he found that had been written by the Maharel's son-in-law, one of the golem's co-creators, it quickly became a legend. The story of the golem was super popular in the early part of the 20th century and has endured to this day. The Maharal was a real person, and despite the story of the golem and numerous other mystical abilities attributed to him, like the Maharal being able to talk to animals, there's no evidence that he ever engaged in mysticism of any sort. He was actually a pretty serious and scholarly man. According to this account and legends associated with it, the synagogue of Prague still houses the body of the golem in its attic, and, built in the 1200s, it's the oldest synagogue in Europe in nearly continuous use. The story is nice because of its, well, its optimism. It stands in stark contrast to historical accounts of blood libel, and there are happy endings to all incidents that appear in the story, something that history does not have. I wish that the story was correct, and the blood libel did end in the Maharal's lifetime, but nearly 400 years after the story took place, it's believed that this story was written in Prague as a response to decades of really bad incidents. What I'm saying is, there won't ever be a golem to miraculously save the vulnerable at the last moment. 
we need to stand up for each other and stand together against hate and bigotry. And together, we can make a difference. Next week, it's a pretty hard lane change, and we're talking about Tom Thumb, the man in the time of King Arthur, who was the size of a thumb, who somehow keeps ending up embedded in way too much poop. I mean, any poop is bad, but this is truly too much. I want to say thanks to Shadowhunter77, Fuzzy Pink Squirrels, Fubist, 2BL Forever, Bethy Poo 55, Kelly, Miss Smiley, Layla Rose 26, Zalamar, Rookie Mind, Admiral Ross 2400, Ricey Wah, Stewville 23, Holly Montier, Alex B 1373, Caroline L 78, Ramian, and Vexation 17 for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. It's great to hear from you, and I really appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still a great place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Halloween poop emoji neck pillow, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show that's also sometimes a confusing hodgepodge of a bunch of different styles and references, but somehow still works. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Funeral Mountain Terrashot, a fearsome critter from the United States. As you probably know by now and from last week, fearsome critters are the definitely real creatures that lumberjacks and other workers discussed in their North American camps in the mid to late 1800s. Well, the Funeral Mountain Terrashot is a flat-faced, casket-shaped creature with a shell on its back and a dream in its heart. Located in the mountains of Southern California, the creature just wanted to leave Southern California Maybe it was tired of the cost of living or the traffic, or maybe it just wanted to see the rest of the U.S. Who knows? One brave Terrashot, we'll call him Terry, rallied all of his brethren and sisterin and said that he would lead them to the promised land of, I guess, Arizona or Nevada. They were all scared. They had never left their home before, but they knew their destiny was beyond the desert. It would be a difficult trek, because they were essentially walking turtle dog caskets, but it would be worth it. Mormon travelers emigrating west saw the procession of Terrashots and didn't understand how monumental or difficult it was for the Terrashot to walk uncovered in the desert during the heat of the day. Terry Terrashot out front, the brave leader who had led all of his fellow creatures from their homes. Well, Terry's legs gave out and he collapsed on the burning sands. His fellow Terrashots would have run to his aid, but being dazed from water, Terry had managed to go a little bit farther than they did. The entire Terrashot species collapsed that day on the sands of Nevada. Oh, and they also exploded because they were extremely combustible. The travelers that went to investigate the odd creature heard a hissing and bubbling as they drew near. So they stepped back a few paces, and it was a good thing they did because Terry Terrashot blew up and left a grave-sized hole in the ground. Terry was just the first, and for the next hour or so, explosions rocked the desert and the mountain ranges as the terror shots exploded one by one. When the travelers reached their destination, they tried to tell people about these creatures, but no one believed them without evidence, and, of course, all the evidence they had was just a line of holes in the desert. Because of the brave leadership of Terry Terrashot, today, the terror shots don't exist. They all blew up in the desert, but their legacy lives on. Supposedly, they named the mountain range just west of Las Vegas, the Funeral Mountains, after the incident with the exploding turtle casket dogs. (laughs) 
That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks to another sponsor today. Have you ever listened to a podcast and thought, I could do that? Well, you're in luck. Squarespace, the juggernaut of podcast advertising, has partnered with Gimlet Creative to find the next great podcast host. The search will be documented in a podcast by Jonathan Goldstein, host of Gimlet Media's Heavyweight Podcast. If you're a U.S. resident over the age of 18, you can submit your podcast idea by visiting castingcallshow.com. Submissions close by May 21st. Don't wait. Submit your idea for the next great podcast at castingcallshow.com. That's castingcallshow.com by May 21st. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.